to cognitive bias. And I think it's going to be a really interesting topic of conversation because it's something that everybody can relate to and everybody falls into. I think we all have cognitive bias. And I think really you could just probably shorten this to just biases. Like, I mean, because everybody is biased about something, but we're going to talk about how it happens, why it happens. Right. It's a little bit different, though, than bias, say, if you have, if you're biased, say, against another race. Okay. It's different. I'll explain how. So in this context, the cognitive bias is a subconscious. See, that's, I think that's one of the differences because often when, if you find someone who's racist, it's a very conscious act. The, okay. In that way, it's different. So the cognitive biases that we are talking about are subconscious and it's a thinking error. And it leads you to misinterpret information that comes to you from the world around you. And it affects how you make decisions. And, you know, you may not make rational decisions and the information that you base your judgments and decisions on may not be accurate. And so they're automatic processes. So when you said we all have them, we all have them. It's just part of our what our brain does. Yeah, I think my, the one thing I want to say about the brain, I'm always amazed at the brain and mm-hmm. something it is curious in that it causes us some problems. But in this regard, the brain is set up to do things quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this is doing. So we'll use the word perhaps uh, occasionally heuristic and heuristic generally means it's a set of rules by which we make decisions and they're not, they're kind of loosely defined rules. But what happens is we have these heuristics in our our brain that helps us to make decisions very quickly. Mm-hmm. So th- is that clear about what a cognitive bias is? And we're we're going to talk about them specifically, but I just as a general idea, it's an unconscious process okay. that leads us to make thinking errors based on we misinterpret the information that we're receiving. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that does make sense. Sense. And so how I'm relating this, I guess, into simpler terms is maybe, for example, I am really biased against olives. I think they're disgusting and I don't like them. Right. Which and that comes down to preference. But so that's probably not a cognitive that's bias, a, though. That's OK. Yeah. OK. It's a dislike. I mean, I, right. I, I'm kind of with you there. <laughs> yeah. Any other food I can bear through it. And I but olives, I will gag. They're so gross. They really are. So <laughs> let me give some history. Here. Okay. So we've mentioned a book. I think we mentioned it last week. It's called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he wrote the book back in 2011. But he first came up with this idea of cognitive bias back in 1972. And he worked with, a, they lived in Israel at the time. This He and his partner or his, his colleague, uh, whose name is Amos Tversky, Mm-hmm. And so they worked together and they came up with these ideas of cognitive biases. Now, a lot of their work was used to help people understand how we make financial decisions. And okay. so I can't remember the year, but Tversky, his colleague, died uh, fairly young. But uh, Daniel Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he is a what he would call an experimental psychologist. And so a psychologist getting the Nobel Prize in economics because of his work on cognitive biases. Now, in 2005, however, a man named Malcolm Gladwell, who you Mm -hmm. may have heard, wrote a book called Blink. 
And in that book, so the, so his book, Blink, comes out six years before Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's pretty clear. Uh, I read Blink many, many years ago, but in, in reviewing what he talks about, it's pretty clear that he is using the ideas of Daniel Kahneman. So, for instance, they each talk about two types of uh, ways that we make judgments. So in the title of Daniel Kahneman's book, Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. he would call that system one and system two. System one being it's an automatic thing we have that we make decisions quickly. A lot of people call it intuition. Okay. Have, you know, this intuition that something's going to be this way. The way Kahneman would explain that is he thinks it's just recognition that in our brain and in our memory, something triggers us to remember something that we've experienced or seen before. We can't really pinpoint and say, oh, this is what I'm remembering. And so it feels more like intuition. It feels like this intuitive process. Okay. And, and so that's what Kahneman calls system one. But in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, he calls it strategy one. Or no, he, he actually flips them. He calls it strategy two, unconscious thinking. And then system two is what, that's what Kahneman calls it. And that's his conscious thinking where you're really focusing on all the information. You're, you're being more deliberate in how you make a decision. And I think that it's pretty clear to me as I listen to Kahneman talk about this, that he really thinks that that system two is the better way, that he thinks there are too many inaccuracies that happen, mm -hmm. too many errors that occur in system one. But if you were to read Malcolm Gladwell's book, he then, here's how he starts it. Let's see, he says, we usually think of snap judgments as lazy, superficial, and probably wrong. But are they really? See, that's from Malcolm Gladwell's book. And so I think he's trying to make the argument that sometimes uh, those judgments are just as good or even better than. I think that would be a, something that Kahneman would probably disagree with. Yeah. Him. So that's just a little history. I think people sometimes mistakenly think that somehow Malcolm Gladwell came up with this idea just because his book came out first. But Kahneman's work was way back in 1972. And for some reason, he didn't write the book until okay. uh, 2011. Now, also, some people mistake cognitive bias with what is called a logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. And fallacy is really very different in that it's a way, like if you're having a discussion or possibly a debate with someone else, then sometimes people use logical fallacies. Let me give you an example of one. Here's one. People love to give these things name, which I guess we have to name them. Otherwise we wouldn't right, know. right. Here's the band, this is the bandwagon fallacy. And what this means is if a lot of people believe something to be true, then it must be true. Mm -hmm. And you can have an argument. You can say, well, you know, 10,000 people believe this to be true. And so it's really a logical fallacy because it doesn't make any sense in the right. whatever argument you're having. Um, the other one that a lot of a lot of listeners may be familiar with is called a straw man fallacy. And what that is, is if you're in a discussion with someone else and I'm, I'm in a discussion with someone and I want to refute what they're saying using the straw man uh, fallacy, then what I do is I take their ideas and I really simplify it. And okay. I and I don't really 
use the whole idea because most ideas are fairly complex and involved. But if I want to refute it, then I simplify it and it makes it easier for me to refute just that one little piece of whatever it is we're talking about. And that's called the straw man fallacy. So logical fallacies, there are many more, but they're not the same as cognitive biases. So any questions that you might have, because I know we're going into this fairly quickly. Yes. So there's a couple of things. Uh, first, I want to go back to what you called, people call it, you know, maybe intuition. Uh-huh. So let's talk about intuition and instinct. And when you were talking about this, I immediately went to motherhood and how instinctive it is when you become a mother. It's so instinctive to take care of this baby. Right. I mean, and, you know, a lot of it is basics and a lot of it, I guess, you know, people show you how But I mean, I was amazed at how instinctive it was for me to take care of this newborn and just to know what to do. And even still, it's so instinctive to know how to care for my children. And I'm experiencing all of these things as a mom for the first time. And I just know what to do. So I mean, instinct's different than intuition. Okay. I think they're very, very different. And so what you're, the way you're describing instinct is exactly how I would describe instinct is that it's this inborn knowledge or emotion that we have that really kicks into play. And I, you know, most animals have that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, if you think of in the animal kingdom, at least in mammals, you know, you're always going to care for your young Mm -hmm. and how do they know how to do that? No one's taught them how to do it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That, that instinct. And what you're describing is that same thing. It's instinct. As opposed to intuition, if you are presented with a decision that you have to make quickly, or even a decision on how you might interpret someone else's behavior or actions, mm-hmm. that's not instinct. That's- okay. See, and what what happens is in that unconscious processing of all the information, like, for instance, we'll talk about some of these biases is how people look. So mm-hmm. just the way they look is going to influence the way we make our decision, yeah. uh, the way they talk, the language they have, if they appear educated or not educated, if they would appear poor or wealthy, we think of them in a very different way. So we make those decisions, those kind of snap unconscious decisions really based on that information that we're getting in. That's the intuition. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And that is something that I can clearly point to. And and I've shared this before. I have a specific childhood trauma. I was sexually abused as a young child. And yeah. so, and, and I am very much aware of this cognitive bias, but I am triggered by people who have a certain look and mm-hmm. who have certain mannerisms. They trigger me. And I've worked very, very hard, and I still work very hard to overcome that and to not outwardly appear uncomfortable. But, I mean, people who remind me of this person who molested me as a young child, it's a cognitive bias, and it's very triggering to me. And, you know, that's not necessarily something we can control. I don't think it's necessarily an excuse to treat people poorly. It's good for us to be aware of these cognitive biases that we could have. That is a perfect example of the halo effect. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I don't, I don't know if I like the names or I don't understand who gave them the names. I, I'm yeah. pretty sure it wasn't Kahneman, but other people out who came after him. So the halo, the halo effect is is about that. It, it applies to physical characteristics. 
And so the way you described it is, is exactly how that works. Okay. You use the word trigger, which makes it so you see something and you and your memory comes into play. And, you know, so you're triggered by this memory and you make it that people might call it intuition, but it's really just that unconscious a decision making that you're going to be wary of these people or maybe avoid them or do something like that. And then at the end of our episode tonight, I think we'll talk about what do you do? And there's, re there's really not much you can do except, as you said, be aware. Yeah. And that's really about it because mm -hmm. you're never going to change that. Yeah. That's, that's embedded in your brain. And so mm -hmm. that's always going to happen. And I think it's really important for people who have that type of experience to be gentle and kind with themselves. Yes. Because, because it's not like you're saying, oh, I hate these people because of some, there's something very specific that happened to you. Mm -hmm. And the way this person or the way these people look is then going to be a trigger. So that's the halo effect. And that's a pretty yeah. good example of the halo effect. There was this other uh, very interesting study they did I think it was men. So they had men read scholarly articles or like a, an abstract of a scholarly article. And they had some that were, well, that were well written and some that were obviously not well written. And then in some cases, they published a picture of the author, all female authors with them. And some of the female authors were attractive and some were not. And okay. men, no matter what it was, even the poorly written ones, they always rated the attractive authors higher Interesting. Uh, as far as what they wrote. And so that mm -hmm. is uh, an example of the halo effect. Okay. And it's interesting that you say that. I mean, because I, again, I think that's something that we all tend to do. We mm -hmm. all make snap judgments based mm -hmm. on people's appearance. Right. And I know that like, if, if I see someone who is, who looks like, I don't know if they are, if they look like they're a homeless person or if they look like they're in a gang or something like that, they're going to make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, but as, whereas if I see someone who's in a business suit and who is very professional and who is well-dressed, I mean, I'm not just going to immediately trust them, but I'm not going to be uncomfortable meeting them for the first time. And again, that all has to do with experience and what we're taught right? We're, and we're not advocating that these cognitive biases are an excuse for poor treatment of anybody, because I honestly believe that everybody deserves kindness and respect. And, you know, yes, I have a cognitive bias against people who have a specific look, but it doesn't mean I treat them the way I'm feeling. Like I don't, you know, I don't let my anxiety show and I don't try to avoid them or I'm not cruel to them, or I don't say, no, 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 I can't associate with you because you scare me. Now, another thing that I wanted to talk about when I first read this halo effect, so you said that it especially applies to physical attractiveness influencing how you rate their qualities. And so, and maybe this is different, but this makes me think of when it comes to physical attraction, at least for me, and I guess obviously Curtis is the most physically attractive person to me that I know. I am highly, highly highly physically attracted to him, but that's developed, that developed over time. Curtis and I did not have that. I mean, neither one of us experienced that. Oh my goodness. This person's drop dead gorgeous. Neither one of us experienced that, but over time we've developed a deep connection and we're obviously very physically attracted to each other. So 
is that, I guess, maybe the opposite of the halo effect as far as the cognitive bias or where does that fall into it? I think you're talking about something different because you're okay. talking about romantic attractiveness. Like if you walk down the street, you're going to be able to say that person's attractive, that person's right. not. Mm-hmm. That's what it's referring to. What okay. you're talking about, though, is attractiveness in a romantic partner, which I think is very, very different. There are other things that come into play for that. There's a lot of uh, things like, uh, I mean, the biggest one that we aren't aware of is smell and mm-hmm. fair that play into that. So that's not what this is talking about. Okay. Piece. But here, here's the saying, do you know the saying that comes to mind? I mean, it came Love at first sight. Not for that. It's oh, okay. the halo effect. Do not judge a book by its cover. Cover. Yep. Yep. And so I think you have to be really careful. I had my own experience with this. And this was many years ago. I was painting I was something out on our deck and I was standing on a ladder and this big spider came and it startled me and I stepped off the ladder. And what happened is a rupture, it's called rupture in my quadricep tendon, mm. which essentially means your leg doesn't work anymore because there's nothing that lets your quadricep muscle uh, work. So a friend took me to the hospital. I'm at university hospital. I think that's where we went. And can you imagine how I was dressed? I was in these ratty Levi's with holes. I had paint all over. I had, a, I don't know what type of t-shirt I was wearing, but I was outside painting and yeah. I had probably been painting for most of the day. And so I'm sure my hair looked crazy and I probably had paint on me. I, I didn't look well kept and they put me in a wheelchair. They wheeled me in and I didn't get in a room. I stayed in the hall. I was in the hall for about two hours. I'm making an assumption that it was because of the way I looked. But mm-hmm. the only way that it changed was my father-in-law had a really good friend who was a very well-regarded children's surgeon. And so everybody knew who this guy was. And he got wind of it and he walked over. So he came over from primary children's over to the University of Hospital. And as soon as he walked in and he talked to somebody and boom, I was in a room right then. Yeah. Being yeah. At. But otherwise, you know, I don't know what they thought of me. I was kind of out of it because I just mm-hmm. had this accident, but I was sitting in a wheelchair for a very long time. Yeah. And you know, and part of that too could just be that, I mean, hospitals are genuinely a busy place, yeah. but it, it could too have been the way you were dressed and the way you looked. And that's why in certain instances, especially in the medical field, you're not supposed to discriminate. I mean, you're not supposed to put things like looks like you're supposed to treat everybody very equally. And I agree with that. Now, when it comes to, you know, I don't know, our interactions with people that are, I guess, ephemeral, right? If I'm walking down the street and I see someone, I'm going to make a snap judgment. And we all will. We all make these snap judgments. And, you know, I think it's a little more excusable. Now it doesn't excuse how you decide to treat this person. Right. But it's different. Right. I mean, whereas I don't know if I'm a nurse and I see someone who comes into a hospital or into a medical setting, I need to be unbiased. I need to put my biases aside. Whereas if I'm just meeting some random person on the street. That's true. And what you're describing is that system one in Mm -hmm. the fast thinking. But I think what Kahneman would say is that your chance of being wrong is pretty high. Okay. Your chance of making an inaccurate judgment about the person is pretty high. 
And, okay. you know, in my own example in the hospital, it changed as soon as the doctor walked in. The other doctor who was yep. a friend of my father-in-law so immediately changed. You know, I like your description, though, because it really shows that we, we all do it. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that. Is mm-hmm. We all make these snap judgments. And so the only way around that is to catch yourself and think twice. And I try and do this with people I see. Mm-hmm. And this might have to do with the work that I do because I hear all these people's stories. Yeah. And so I think everyone has a story. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a background and we just don't know it. And so when we're walking down the street, we have no idea what this person has gone through or what their life history is. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to a couple of others. The one I wanted to talk about next is called confirmation bias. Mm. I think the reason that I wanted to talk about that is in Kahneman's book, he thinks this is the, I don't know how we put it, most damaging uh, confirmation bias. And so I think it's important for everyone to understand what that is. And so confirmation bias is is the tendency that we have to interpret any new information in a way that it supports or confirms our previously existing beliefs or values. Mm -hmm. And often we neglect or ignore any piece of information that doesn't fit into that previously stored information. I'm going to go through some examples of this, but I think one that we've all experienced, you know, just recently, there was a recent election. I think part of the polarization that we find in our country is really about the confirmation bias. Yes. A lot of people have a lot, you know, if they read something that contradicts what they believe, they just say, oh, that's false. Yep. What the confirmation bias does, it tends to make it so we don't really examine things in a, an objective way which I think mm-hmm. well, we're making a lot of decisions. We need to do that. But here are some various ways that this plays out. You know, we did an episode a long time ago where we talked about research. And I can't remember that. But I, do you remember how some research was falsified, right? Yeah. So, so the sci- in scientific research, this happens because often researchers are doing exactly the same thing. Yep is that they, you know, they, they go into the research with this idea of here's what's going to happen or here's what I want to happen. And I'll remind listeners that what the reason that is, is because then that's the way they get published and they have to get published in order to get promoted or keep their job. But what that does, that's just the confirmation bias because they probably ignore or don't put as much weight onto that, the information that, you know, doesn't support their research or their claims. So I think it's something that happens a lot there. And you have just described, I don't know, the political realm in its Mm -hmm. entirety. I mean, and it's so, so common in politics is confirmation bias. And that is exactly what I thought of when I read this. I mean, and that's why politics, I think there's so much division. And I think social media has a lot to do with confirmation bias. Because in social media, we have this ability to surround ourselves with like-minded people and people who think like we do, and we can push out anyone who thinks differently. And so it creates a serious confirmation bias problem because we get stuck in our own echo chamber because we're only surrounded by people 
who share the same beliefs as we do. And so you start thinking everybody must think this way and anyone who doesn't must be wrong. That's not true. There yeah. are other thoughts and there are other opinions. And you know what? Both can be right. So another thing that I thought of when it comes to confirmation bias or one phrase that I think might be able to fall into a cognitive bias is I've talked about this before, the idea that truth is in the eyes of the beholder mm -hmm. in that, you know, two people can witness the same event and over time, they're going to remember it differently and they're going to tell the same event differently or they're going to see it from a different perspective. And so it's subjective. Truth can be very subjective. You're coming up with all my examples, Liz. <laughs> well, social, social media, I wanted to talk about. Social media, that problem is really amplified by the artificial intelligence that guides yeah. it because it's leading people, you know, into that confirmation bias. But eyewitness accounts, that's why eyewitness accounts, you have to be very careful because yeah. the way we construct memories yeah. of events is very different and it's based on i think i've talked about the filters we all get from past experience the lens through which we see the world i mean all for instance if you were witnessing an event where one of those people who had those characteristics of your abuser mm -hmm. you would remember that in a very different way from someone who witnessed the same event with the same person who did not have that same trigger yeah, so there's this emotional content and value. So yeah, you're you're right about that. I think the other one to mention would be religious views. Mm -hmm. I think that you know religion throughout the world is something that divides a lot of people. I mean, if you think about all the wars or conflicts that have been waged in the name of religion, where a group of people are thinking, you know, my ideas, my values, my religious views, or my concept of a God is the right one and everyone else is wrong. And so, again, that's confirmation bias. Is that mm -hmm. It's very hard to think about anyone else's ideas as having value to them. Yeah. I think the only way to counteract that is just to let go of the idea that you're right mm -hmm. or that there's only one way to be right. There's only one truth, right? I mean, and I'm not saying to let go of your beliefs. I mean, as a deeply religious person, I mean, I have truths that I believe very, very deeply. I mean, I my religious traditions are very, very dear to me and I hold very closely to them. But it doesn't mean that I discount other people's beliefs. I don't and I don't discount other people's feelings. It's okay that somebody believes and thinks differently than me. In fact, it occurs inside my own religion. And, you know, I accept that. I have to accept that. We all have to accept that. Or at least we all need to. We'll get along a lot better if we did. Right. But you realize, Liz, that there are many people who don't do that and, and fundamental to many religions. I'm not, I mean, it's hard to say which ones is this mm -hmm. idea that it is the one true religion. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have the backing of God behind you, it's really right. hard to think that I, that you need to either listen to anyone else or even think about other ideas. And so I think it's one of the major problems in many religious communities is the inability to look at other people's ideas as being valid for them. It doesn't, mm -hmm. and I'm not, it has to be valid for, for you. It's just that, yeah. you know, there are many ways to lead a happy and fulfilling life mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be the same for everyone. So. Oh yeah. 
exactly. And, and I very firmly believe that. I mean, I love living my religious lifestyle and, and I want everybody to have that same experience. I think everybody should have that same opportunity. Live your life in a way that, that allows you to be happy, whatever's best for you. And I think if as a human being, as long as it's not directly impacting other people negatively, just let them live their life. I don't know why you have to be hateful or upset because somebody chooses to live their life a certain way when it has absolutely no bearing on you. And I feel like this can get a little sticky when you delve into the realm of politics, because then people say, well, the way you vote has an effect on my life. It's like, I don't know. You know, I think yeah. I remember many years ago, I, I, this is a long time ago. You probably weren't old enough to even think about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think there was, I can't remember who was president. Maybe, maybe it was Clinton. Okay. And oh, I can't even remember the guy who came in and it's called the contract for America. And they came in and they took both houses of Congress and, you know, so they took over the Republican. So Clinton's a Democrat. And mm-hmm. midway, you know, through the term, uh, Newt Gingrich was the guy. And he's still on the news every once in a while. Anyway, he led this kind of, it wasn't really, you wouldn't call it a revolution, but they took over the House and the Senate. And I remember I had a colleague who was just devastated about mm-hmm. that. And like really despondent over this whole thing. Like, okay, yeah. the gonna go down the wrong way. And what I still think this today and what I tried to help her see is like the country is like this gigantic ship that is really hard to change direction. Yeah. And, and so to think that, okay, you know, all of a sudden everything's going to change is just, it's not accurate. Yeah. It yeah. takes a lot of time to, to change we're, you know, we're 300 million people in 50 buried states. Just mm-hmm. not that easy. Anyway, I think I think you're right, is that we have to maintain some perspective. Yeah. And I'd like to mention a couple of others because we're going to run out of time, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Which is, that's typical for us, right? Uh-huh. Very, okay. very typical. Yep. So, so <laughs> self-serving bias. I think this is an interesting one. This is the tendency to blame external forces when bad things happen to us Mm -hmm. and then to credit ourselves when good things happen to us. So, you know, something good happens. Oh, for instance, let's say in a financial decision, I made an investment and it tanked. And I could say, ah, the market, it just wasn't the right time to do this investment. The market went down. But I could take that same investment and I doubled or tripled it. And then I would say, wow, aren't I smart that I actually made that good investment? So you see, if it goes bad, it's something else's fault. Mm -hmm. If it goes well, then it's my credit. That sounds like narcissism. Well, (laughs) I mean, maybe a little bit. But I think it's just the way we think about it. It's, you know, okay. it's self-protective in a lot okay. of ways. In, instead of saying, shoot, I made this really stupid decision. Yeah. I just all this money. It's easier to say, well, you know, really it was the market and it was bad timing. Yeah. Uh, so that that's one thing that, that I think we probably all experience. So here's another one. That is probably common. I think to people who have, we've all purchased a car. This it is one of my least favorite uh, yeah. activities ever. The cars that Lindy and I drive are like I think they're sixteen and seventeen years old, and we are trying to make sure they 
you know, keep going just because I hate that process. Anyway, it's called the anchoring bias. And here's what it is. So if you go in, let's say an example, you buy a car and you go in and you know that the average price of a car, say, is, let's say, $30,000. And, you know, it doesn't matter really where you get that information. It's just that then anchors in your mind and anything less than $30,000, you're going to consider to be a good deal. Yep even though it may not be. And even though you might be able to find it less somewhere else than what, like if the salesman comes up and says, yeah, I'll do you a favor, I'll $28,000. And you think, oh, wow, okay. Cause yeah, average price is going to be 30. This is great. I'm saving $2,000. Yep. And so often if you're in negotiations, the first person to throw out a number is usually the one who has the advantage. You know, because if you, for instance, you throw it out really high, I'll settle this negotiation, you know, I'll settle our dispute for half a million dollars, when really you'd be happy with $250,000. But you throw out the half a million dollars, and by the time you get to 250000 the other person is thinking, wow, I got them down to half. Yeah. That is called the anchoring bias. That sounds like retail. <laughs> well, I keep... okay. okay, that's right. Because uh, I, you don't need to divulge any secrets of the place you work. But I, I think we've all gone into a store and it might say sale on it. We're it always doing... does. Yeah, but the sticker underneath it, the price might be exactly the same. Yeah. But all we're looking at is sale and reduced. And that's yeah. the thing that, you know, sticks any... with it. Anytime I go into a store and they say, oh, yeah, 70 percent off. Everything is 70 percent off. My first thought is, OK, it's really? marked. It, <laughs> it, they marked it up 50 percent and, and then took it back down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They marked it up 50 percent and then they took it back down. And so they're saying original price was. And so you think you're getting this really great deal when reality you're not. You're not. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the anchoring bias. And then the final one is it's called functional fixedness. And I'm only bringing this up because I think I feel this. As I'm aging, this becomes more true for me. This is the tendency to see objects as only working in a particular way. Yeah. And I have I have that difficulty, and I didn't used to, mm-hmm. but it takes me, like if I have a problem to solve, it takes me a couple of days to really figure out, oh, I could do it this way. And one example, I remember uh, we make our own uh, cold brew coffee, which for Mm -hmm. people who are familiar with that, cold brew is just a way of brewing coffee. And so it takes uh, 12 to 24 hours to do it. And so it was Christmas morning or something that I had made this cold brew coffee caffeinated. Unbeknownst to me, Adrian had gone ahead and put some decaf in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I went and I saw this and this thing. And I had just emptied this thing. And I thought, what is this? Because it was only half full because she didn't want very much. And I could not make the leap to, oh, somebody else has put coffee in here and is making their own coffee. So I threw it out. <laughs> it's I couldn't. And, and yeah. then as soon as she said it, I thought, well, that was, you know, how crazy is that of me to think no one else is going to use this or that there might not be coffee? All I could see was I had just emptied this and now I was half full again. And I thought it just couldn't be that way. So you get stuck. I think a lot of people, when they get older, you know, we become less flexible that way. Um, and I, well, and I don't know about even just getting older. I mean, I, 
I think a lot of us can relate to that. So the example you gave in this is, you know, if you don't have a hammer, you never consider that a wrench can also be used to drive a nail into the wall. Which I used to use wrenches all the time as hammers. (laughs) I used to do that all the time. Right. But I mean, you know, when we see something and it's used a certain way for so long, we would never consider that you could use it in a different way. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, that happens all the time, you know. You know, as as we end this, I think the the thing you have to do is be aware. Like yeah. You said this way back at the start is that you have to be aware. And then I think look at all the information in an objective way as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so take in all the information and don't discard any. But really, it's the idea of going into a decision with an open mind and looking at making more, might say, logical and rational decisions. Yeah. You know, I get an odd sense of satisfaction at confusing, I guess, what you might call the Internet algorithms. They don't really they really don't know what to make of me because I regular (laughs) I regularly listen to Ben Shapiro and the Young Turks. So they have no idea which way to go. They're like, I don't know what to give what to show this girl. So, because I mean, I listen to people who are polar opposites. So, do that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just be aware, like you said. Yeah. That's the first step. Yeah. Is is awareness. I mean, you know, acceptance is they say the first step to recovery. So, yep. all right. 